Will New York's new campaign finance law reduce big money or erase true democracy? It is great to be back with you. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a WBI listener and a Max and Murphy listener. I'm excited about today's show. We are really digging into this issue of campaign finance reform in New York. Uh, for those who have not been paying attention, and you can catch up with lots of reporting at Gotham Gazette and City Limits, but for those who have not been paying attention, a commission was created in the state budget that was agreed upon in, at the end of March, beginning of April, to create a commission to study public campaign financing and a new campaign finance system in New York when the legislature and the governor could not agree on campaign finance reforms uh, during the beginning of the legislative session or into the budget. And that commission completed a bunch of hearings, a bunch of meetings, and put forward its binding report, which will become law unless the legislature takes action and then the governor signs that action into law or vetoes and then the legislature overrides that veto. Um, so this commission that had representatives of the governor, the majority and minority leaders of the two houses of the state legislature – put together a new campaign finance system for New York and also did some real tinkering with political party ballot qualification requirements. And that also really has dominated this fall of hearings about the system. And this is a complex and important thing, the idea of, first of all, attacking the state's campaign finance system as it exists now, which has extraordinarily high contribution contribution limits, um, you know, really a, an amazing amount of money that individuals can contribute to individual candidates. Attacking that, creating a public financing system is complicated. It's, it's important. Uh, but that really was almost shunted aside by this feud between the governor and the Working Families Party and the question of whether this uh, commission would tackle the, whether fusion voting would be permitted in New York State. This is fusion voting is why when you go to the ballot box or uh, or to the voting site in New York State, in New York City, you can see the same candidate on multiple party lines. That is not true in all states. It is a tradition going back many decades in New York, and it is the reason why parties like the Working Families Party exist. Uh, as you have, I'm sure, heard, the party and the governor have been at odds for many years, and so there was some talk of using the commission to outlaw fusion voting. Instead of doing that, they changed the requirements for how parties make the ballot, how they qualify to be a part of uh, each election process, and raise that threshold significantly higher than uh, it has been or than most parties were registering in recent elections. So there's two pieces to this. One is if you want to get your candidate onto the ballot, how many signatures do you need to get a candidate onto the ballot to sort of create a line or recreate a line if you've been bumped off? Then there's how many votes do you need to receive? Typically in New York, it's been in a gubernatorial election to maintain an automatic ballot line for the next four years till the next gubernatorial election. And they, they change both of those to increase the number of signatures to get on the ballot and then also the number of votes that you need to get not only for your gubernatorial candidate but also for your presidential candidate, which throws a whole new element into the mix as we head into 2020. Um, that, you know, is potentially going to wreak some havoc, not only with the higher requirements for the number of votes or the percentage of votes, depending on which is higher, but, um, but also how smaller parties decide what to do in a presidential election, which will be tricky. So we're going to dig today into these issues with two people. First, you'll hear an interview recorded earlier today uh, by Ben Max with Jay Jacobs, who is a member of this commission, a major ally of the governor, a New York State Democratic chair, uh, chair of the NASA County Democratic uh, Party. And then we'll come back here and talk to you. And then we'll hear from Jessica Wisniewski, who is the executive director of Citizen Action of New York and someone who's been skeptical of what the commission has done. But up first is Ben Max's interview with Jay Jacobs, a member of the Public Financing Commission. And we're joined by Jay Jacobs, who's the chair of the State Democratic Party and the Nassau County Democratic Party, and was a member of the State Public Finance Commission that just completed its work. Chair Jacobs, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So um, this was not at all an easy assignment to uh, participate in this commission, a lot of attention on it. It was sort of born out of a very difficult compromise in the state budget after the legislature and the governor didn't quite get to an agreement on campaign finance reform. Um, but you seem to really, you know, in some ways relish this responsibility. But it was a very challenging one, wasn't it? 
it was definitely challenging, but you know, it brought it brought me into um, being involved in something I've had a long-standing interest in, and that's campaign finance and, and public finance. And so I was, uh, you know, excited to be able to do it. Um, but it, it was controversial. It was definitely bumpy, and uh, it was a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. And uh, looking back at it, you know, the, there didn't seem to be a lot of thought put into. You, the commission needing resources, maybe needing staff. I mean, I don't think I've really ever seen anything like this happen. You know, we just covered a couple of charter revision commissions in the city where they had, you know, pretty extensive staff uh, as part of the commission. Was that one of the biggest challenges, not having a staff dedicated to the work? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, the commissioners, we were all named late in the process. We had a December 1st absolute deadline that had to be met. And in the beginning, while we were able, under the statute, to access, um, you know, state um, staff and resources, uh, they just weren't forthcoming. And so it was a little bit difficult getting things underway early on. Uh, I, I did a lot of the coordinating um, myself because it just wasn't going to be able to get done any other way. And so that, that got us started. Ultimately, we did get some staff, fabulous people, by the mm-hmm. way, who, who did help us out. Um, and uh, and I think that you know, made the difference. So we'll get to, obviously, the details and the results in a second, but you just hit on something you know that I found interesting that I wanted to ask you about anyway, which was you, know, you sort of became the de facto leader of the commission. There was no set chair. Did that happen mostly because you obviously have this established um, position as head of the state party? Was it because you were the you know one of the governor's appointees? Was it just a matter of force of personality? You know, so what sort of made you the the de facto leader here of the commission? Well, I mean, it certainly was nothing to do with my position as state party because uh, you know my, my obligation was to separate that, and I know there are a lot of people who are skeptical and somewhat cynical over that aspect of it, and there's nothing much I can do about that, but do my best. But um, I think it was really more perhaps my personality, perhaps you know, I saw a need and I stepped in. I, I wasn't the leader. I, I looked at it, and I think we set it up in the first meeting that I would coordinate. So I had time, and I have some staff to help out, just to set schedules and be in touch with people and get agendas out, and, and things like the basics of how to run a meeting. Um, plus, I've learned a lot of meetings, and so I, I know how to do that. But you, you had some very formidable people on that commission. Uh, we were all equals. There was no chair. You'll note that at every one of our hearings and even our um, public meetings, the gavel rotated. Mm-hmm. I started with the gavel in the first meeting, and um, I then did not pick it up again until the last meeting. And and um, most of the other members each uh, held the gavel and were temporary chair. Right. So, you know, we, we kind of spread it out pretty well. Right. I mean, I guess even with you uh, starting it and ending it, that was a little bit symbolic uh, there of, of the role you played. But, um, all right, so let's get into the details here. What are, what are some of the things that you really are proud of that, that came out of this? What would you, you know, for folks who haven't been following this as closely as, let's say, you know, some of the real insiders like uh, those that read Gotham Gazette and City Limits. Um, what, what would you highlight for people as the big takeaways here that you want people to know about? The goal was to minimize large donor influence and maximize and amplify the small donors. And if that was the goal, particularly as, as well to address grassroots activism and getting people more involved in their own communities, I think, you know, we hit it on all counts here. If you think about it for a second, we now have a campaign finance, public finance matching fund plan, which is better than the six to one that all of the advocates were calling for. I can't tell you how many emails I got uh, demanding a six to one match. Well, for state legislative seats, it's as high as uh, 12 to one on the first $50, uh, eight to one a nine to one, I'm sorry, on the next 100, eight to one on the last 100, comes out to an average on $250 of 9.2 to one. It's 50% greater mat. The other thing I would tell you is that we lowered the contribution levels, not as low as you know many of the advocates would love it to be, but you know as low as we felt we could go. Uh, we went from a state cap level, a statewide level cap. Uh, political contribution level of $70,000 about down to $18,000. It's dramatic. Would people like it to go further? Perhaps. I'm sure they would. But, you know, I think we did an awfully good job there. We have in-district um, limitations on the uh, uh, on contributions that will be matched, which will, again, 
amplify the communities that people are running from. And that's why we get, we put in this progressive match that I described before, better than uh, anywhere else, better than the city of New York, frankly, to, to make sure that candidates would have enough money because of the match to reach the dollar cap that we set for each of the offices they were running for. So I think it's really a great system. Um, you know, when, when, uh, when it begins, I think you'll see far more competition, far more excitement among candidates, and far more participation by people who just don't have the same high level of money that, you know, is normally associated with campaign contributors being in the process. And that's what this was all about. So let's just um, dig into a couple things you mentioned. The, the $18,000 is, as you said, a dramatic drop from 70000 as the individual contribution limit to statewide candidates. But as you say, 18000 is, you know, there's there's not that many New Yorkers. I mean, there's, there's a good pool because it's New York, but there's not that many New Yorkers that can give $18,000 to a political candidate. Um, why, stay, why stay that high? Well, again, remember, you have to uh, focus on the fact of, of competition, not only coming from other candidates, but from independent expenditure groups. We didn't want to bring the level down so far that when a candidate got hit by one of these IEs, independent expenditure groups, uh, that, you know, Citizens United has let run rampant across the country, that they wouldn't have the ability to reach out uh, and get the resources necessary to combat it. So, you know, we didn't want to bring it all the way down. And, you know, I, I've heard the critics say, well, that's not what you've seen in New York, and that's a national thing. That's not true. I mean, I've seen it in Nassau County. You know, we, we had groups come in in Nassau County, pump hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars against uh, candidates that we had running for office and swamp them. And, and they lost uh, good candidates, progressive candidates, and, and, and this happens. So, you know, we, we didn't want to see uh, a complete disarming of the candidate's voice. And that's unfortunately uh, something that necessitated a slightly higher amount than other people might have thought they would like to see. And why limit um, the matching to in-district for legislative um, races? Why... Why penalize candidates if they have, you know, support from, let's just say, just outside their senator assembly district or, or even further away, you know, people who really believe in their message and think they'd be a great representative? Why, why limit to in-district matching? Well, that's an important point, and, and it's been the subject of a lot of criticism that I think is just uh, misdirected. Let's think about this for a second and, and, and understand it this way. Number one. What's the objective? The objective is to focus on candidates who have grassroots support in their own districts and get them the resources from their district to be able to run. It also was to take challengers and incumbents and focus their fundraising rather than out of district to the people in their community and engaging them more. This does that. The next thing I would say to that is this. We have not stopped out-of-district contribution. You can still get that same, let's say, $250. Uh, if you're running in Queens, you can still get it from someone on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Nothing's stopping you from doing that. All we're saying is that taxpayer dollars are not going to go to magnify the out-of-district $250 you get, as an example, on the upper from somebody on the Upper West Side when you're a candidate running in Queens. People in your district in Queens will get the, give you the 250 That gets amplified by taxpayer dollars. And here's the last piece. Which way do you think the money typically flows? And which way does the influence flow? Does it flow from uh, low-income minority districts into uh, high-income, uh, largely white districts? Or does it flow in reverse from the largely white uh, upper income districts into the um, low income minority districts. And so we're, we don't want that influence, that money, going and, and being magnified by taxpayer dollars, and that creates further disparity and unfairness. And, and I'll tell you this, the bottom line of the whole thing is it's irrelevant. If you take a look at the $175,000 that an assembly candidate in a primary, and mainly in New York City you're dealing with primaries, the $175,000 cap, that's all the taxpayer money you can get. You can't get more in taxpayer money on matching money. Mm -hmm. To get to that $175,000 using the 9.2 to 1 match now, all you have to raise in your district is $19,000. 
And if you think of a district that's got 120,000 people and you've got various iterations of ability to do that, $50 uh, will get you 12 times, $600 at eight equals, et cetera, and you do all of that, it's not that tough to get there in district. That's why we gave the progressive match. That was the compensation, the progressive match, and making it nine point two to one rather than six to one, which is what the advocates were asking for, that was done to ensure that every candidate who worked at it would be able to reach their maximum cap of, of taxpayer matchable dollars. Couple couple things that um that you didn't touch are the uh political party accounts, the the, the party accounts and uh, limiting uh, donations from those doing business with the state. So those are those are two pretty big campaign finance reforms um, that that weren't touched by the commission. On each of those, can you explain why those weren't touched? Yeah, well, in, in both cases, you know, uh, the council that we had told us specifically in the law that created this commission. Those were items that were excluded. They were not something that were covered, and we only focused on things that were specifically covered. And court cases have demonstrated that when you uh, have a commission like this, you have to stick pretty close to the delegated authority that you're given from the legislature. And when you exceed that authority, the court strike it down. And so we, we decided not to touch that. That's not to say that I, I don't believe, and I do believe, that the legislature should take it up and, and address both those issues. And that the legislature should should do something to limit donations to political party accounts? Party accounts and, and certainly those doing business uh, mm-hmm. with. Yeah, I, I think uh, with, with the state. I think that that's something that the, um, that the legislature should take a look at, absolutely. As, as the chair of the state party, is that something that you really want to happen? I mean, it seems like, you know, as you said, you've tried to, to really separate your hats here, but uh, thinking about running the state Democratic Party and limiting those donations to the party, especially under a new campaign finance system, it would seem that the state party would then potentially play an even bigger role. Uh, is that something that you would really want as the state party chair? Well, as a state, a state party chair, I would, I would advocate maybe something different, but that's not my role at, at, at this moment. And I know people find it difficult. I don't. I, I consider myself a professional. I know what I, I believe in, and, and I also know what I think is, is right. And I think cleaning up um, politics in New York is important, and the money is a big part of it. There are other pieces that need cleaning up, frankly, but the, the money is an important part of it. And I think if you want to do it right, you've got to focus on those things. And the fact that I happen to be the state party chair at the same time, and maybe I'm arguing against that interest, is to me of no great consequence because you know I've got a job to do, and that's what I'm going to do. So um, we we got your take on on what you think are really the banner achievements here being put forward. Are there things you personally, as a commissioner on this commission, feel disappointed by? Were there one or two things where you are frustrated that you weren't able to get something done, or there was a compromise that you're not crazy about? You know, uh, there are lots of compromises, and and I have to tell you, I I, I gave in on on numbers of them. There are you know things that I, I wouldn't compromise on, and and I didn't feel that I should, and uh, you know we we. You know, we came to terms on, on those things as well. So I, I really don't have disappointments. I have to tell you, the, the commissioners that, you know, I was able to work with were all excellent. I mean, they, they all pitched in. They all worked hard, whether they, you know, were Democrats or Republicans, quite frankly. Uh, they all made a tremendous effort to get on the best plan we could get. And I think we did. And I, and I, I don't have a disappointment on any of it. Yeah. Any any compromise you want to name in specific that, you know, was something where, where you felt like others had to really bring you along in order to, you know, on other things you brought them along. Was there anything in particular that you want to name? Uh, and I, I really don't, um, because I, I don't want to get into, you know, what were the internal things. I don't want people mm-hmm. to, other than what they would see in the open meetings, and, and that was mainly out there, and I, I certainly was out there. You know, unfortunately, the, the, I understand the need for open meetings, but it creates a, a difficult environment to negotiate in. And I, I knew... There were people who wanted much lower contribution levels for everything, you know, uh, uh, state right. assembly, state senate, and and um, statewide races. I, I felt personally uh, that candidates would be under threat from independent expenditure groups. I've seen it. I felt it. I I think one of the reasons why I was put on this commission is not just because I've advocated for public uh, financing in the past and been a you know a supporter of it, but 
also have the experience uh, and, and some expertise in campaign finance and in running of campaigns, the practical aspects, the, the theoretical or textbook um, aspects of it, the, the actual give and take of it. And I see what happens in campaigns. I, I was very concerned that if you limit um, people in terms of their ability to get contributions, uh, you know, just, right. just in small dollar amounts, you are not going to have the war chest you might need in really dire circumstances when you're under attack by some of these IEs. That's that's it. It. So I, that was important. To I'll me. tell you, you hit on it, and and I understand as a commissioner it might be challenging in some ways, but I, you know, I watched a lot of these commission meetings, and it was pretty refreshing you know obviously there were there were private conversations of course both among the commissioners and with other people uh by the commissioners but it was pretty refreshing to see how much public debate and discussion there was and it would be uh it's a pretty interesting model for more of of government related work i think to be out in the open like that um and i I think that was a, a fascinating part of it um which i'm sure as a commissioner was also challenging at times uh maybe not so much for yourself but maybe for others a little bit more um, so the, the one of the, some of the other outcomes here um, that we should get to relate to the political parties um, and the deadlines of when certain things come into play. So you decided there was a lot of talk during the commission hearings and meetings about fusion voting, and that wound up being put aside. Uh, but then you decided to tinker with, in a, in a pretty significant way, um, political party qualifications for getting a ballot line or getting onto the ballot with a candidate in the first place in terms of signatures needed. Can you explain putting aside fusion voting and going with that instead? Let let me lay on it foremost that I have real issues with fusion voting, and I'm not going to go into it now because... Uh, you know, you've got a time element, although I'm more than happy to do it. I could spend a whole show of yours on it. We'll have um, you back for that. Lot, okay, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> uh, a lot of a lot of newspapers, almost every single one of the major newspapers in New York, um, and recently, once more, the New York Times, the New York Post, the Daily News, Newsday, the Buffalo News, Albany Times Union, every one of them has opined in their editorials and had stories about um, the, the problems of minor parties, and uh, they have opined that we should get rid of fusion voting. So it, it's interesting to me that all of those newspapers that have all pointed out how bad fusion voting is and all of the shortcomings, you know, w- weren't as supportive in, in this process. And I think it was all about process, frankly, mm. uh, with what their complaint was. But my view on fusion voting in this was that if I felt that eliminating fusion voting would benefit um, uh, uh, saving taxpayer dollars or, 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 or do something to make sure the system was fiscally uh, more more solvent or, or, or put across more prudently, I would have pursued it. When I looked at it, I studied it. It just did not seem to me to connect, and I couldn't make the argument as to decide. However, threshold on the other side is directly related to the cost of these campaigns. And so that's why threshold, the, the, the uh, qualification for being a party on the ballot to be looked at, and I think came to a very good solution on that. And so the solution on that is to, you know, significantly raise the number of votes or the percentage of votes, depending on what's, what's more, um, that a party needs to have their presidential nominee or gubernatorial nominee hit in order to maintain their their automatic ballot line. What was the problem that you were trying to solve there? Because I think that's that was part of the criticism around dealing with fusion voting was also that, you know, this isn't really that big, a, you know, the, the argument was this isn't really that big a problem. You have a huge task in front of you related to campaign finance reform. So let's not deal with fusion voting. Let's not deal with party requirements and, and focus on that major task of campaign finance reform. So what problem were you trying to solve on the uh, the ballot access? I'll give you, I'll give you the, the perfect example. It's the poster child for the problem. And it is the public advocates race in the city of New York, the special election that took place in 2019, had an open, um, an open election. You had 17 candidates who qualified to be on the ballot. 11 of those candidates that qualified uh, got 
taxpayer matching funds from the New York City matching funds mm -hmm. program. The part that they ran on were the party to pay folks more party, community strong party, no Amazon party, Liberal City party, Unite the Immigrants well, party, well that, Equality for party. But that's a nonpartisan and, special election. You have to, you can't run on the Democratic or Republican line. But the point that I, I'm saying is mm -hmm. these parties were able to run. They were able to get on the ballot, and they got on the ballot, and they qualified for taxpayer matching funds. Now think about what happened. They spent in total $7,165,000 of taxpayer money, all of them, all 11 candidates that had qualified. Uh, more than half of them received about $550,000 each. Those that got that earned just 2% of the vote total for that money. They spent $112 per voter. Only 119,000 total voters, about 2.3% of the total turnout on 5,100,000 plus voters in the city of New York actually came out to vote. It was a colossal waste of money. If you have a low threshold for parties, you can foresee a circumstance where you're going to have multiple parties as it is now. We have five to seven parties to run for governor. The threshold is now easy to make because between the internet and uh, fundraising now being very different than it has been in the past, and it is getting more and more grassroots driven on, on issue-oriented grassroots appeals, you're going to have more candidates able to reach the threshold, get on the ballot, and spend taxpayer money. We have a cap of $100 million. It just is inconceivable that you wouldn't do something to make sure that a permanent spot on the ballot, that it reaches an appropriate threshold, not one that was selected in 1935, 84 years ago, when the registered voters in the state of New York was about, or, or about four and a half or so million people. Now we're near 13 million people. And you just have to get it back to proportionality as to where we were. And, and, the, and the number that we set, which is in the gubernatorial 2% um, or 130,000, whichever is greater, what that does is it makes it so that you have to reach some level of substantive support. The 130,000 number is, is important to note because in my book, and it has, it's not how we, we weigh it in terms of the requirement, but this is how you think about it. In my book, 130,000 voters represent about 1% of all the registered voters in the state of New York. Think about that. So what we're asking is if you want to be a permanent party, which means if you're a catcher in Shimon County, your party can be represented on that ballot. If you want to be that, and you can't achieve 1% of the vote, excuse me, of the registered voters in the state, and that's how it translates out to, and really, I don't think you're a serious party. You know, we've had candidates running for president uh, that you'll be familiar with that were at 1% in the polls, and people would call that income. And so what I'm saying is I, I'm not looking at any particular party. This whole narrative became something about a war between uh, myself or perhaps the governor and the Working Families Party. It wasn't about them. And, and unfortunately, that's the narrative that took over, and, and I still you know, don't, don't support that narrative. I, I was doing this, at least for my part, to ensure that we picked a standard that was substantive but yet to be met. And by the way, the Working Families Party makes those numbers, okay, most of the time. If you take a look at even what they've done in other statewide races, they make it. And they make it by doing the work, putting the in to make their campaigns happen. Spend a little money, and you'll definitely make it. Uh, there were 15,000 votes away or so in the last gubernatorial. Well, that's not very much, and and uh, and they can do it. it, it it's it's going to, as I said, take a, a, a minimal amount of work, La and they'll do it. And they, in fact, said they could do it, and they're going to do it. Mm -hmm. La last question. We went a little bit long. I appreciate the time. Last question is, um, is when these things kick in. The ballot threshold basically kicks in right away, whereas the campaign finance system doesn't kick in until after the next gubernatorial election, along with uh, a variety of other aspects here. It seems like that's sort of a system that the governor would would favor because he won't have to worry about this campaign finance system as he you know continues to develop the massive war chest that he does when he goes for a fourth term here. Um, why have the ballot requirement kick in 
before the public finance uh, aspect? Everything that we could do to get things started as quickly as we can, we did. Uh, starting up the public campaign finance board is happening and needs to happen uh, away. Uh, there are regulations that are going to be drawn, all of that. We did what we could right away. We only deferred the elements that could not be enforced, could not be executed. Uh, on time. So we, we didn't feel there was a need to delay on, on the party threshold aspect of it. It gets parties ready uh, and able before the, the finance period uh, begins to get themselves uh, into position to qualify and uh, and to work at doing that. So, um, you know, I, I guess people could look at it and say, why do this or why do that? Why not put the whole thing off? We were trying to get done as much as we possibly could as soon as we possibly could, and I think that's what we did. And, and don't you want, I mean, isn't one of the go- stated goals to weed out some of those parties before the the campaign finance system kicks in? Isn't that part of the reason as well? Well, yeah, I mean, and you say weed out. It's not to weed out so much as we say this. If you are a substantive party, which means you have substantive support, credible support, of about 1% of the people who are registered in the state, and you deserve to be on the ballot, and then that's fine. And then you also deserve to have access to uh, public matching funds, taxpayer dollars. That's fine. If okay. you don't, well, work harder or, or, or get more support. All right, Jay Jacobs, thanks for the extra time. We appreciate you joining us. Jay Jacobs is the chair of the State Democratic Party and was a member of the State Public Financing Commission that just completed its work. Thanks very much for the time. Thank you. That was uh, Jay Jacobs, a leading member of the Public Financing Commission uh, behind the issuance of the blueprint for a new public financing system for New York State. And unless the legislature acts, which it appears not likely to, that will become the new law in a matter of days for New York, a system setting out for the first time ever a matching fund system for New York State, um, stricter, although not particularly strict. Uh, restrictions on contribution sizes, which would reform a major problem with the current uh, state system and changes in terms of what parties can have to do to be part of the uh, the ballot, at least going forward in, in New York State. Uh, ben, takeaways from your conversation. By the way, you're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM. Uh, so, I mean, a couple of things. One, I don't think we should um, underestimate how significant these changes will be if they are in fact incorporated into law and i think by almost all accounts pretty positive i mean there are republicans certainly and conservatives saying we should not be spending any taxpayer dollars you know on political campaigns and the state doesn't have this kind of money to to spread around but by and large especially in the heavily democratic state of new york and especially new york city you know there's a lot of praise for this um, and you've even heard there are some Republicans who are in favor of this type of campaign finance reform and really bringing down those huge, huge individual limits. Now, are they brought down far enough? I think there's some debate over that, certainly, as I got into a little bit with Jay Jacobs there. Um, but I, I think it's important not to lose sight of the fact that instituting a public campaign finance system with these matching dollars um, is is a hugely significant development. And one that will likely be tweaked and tinkered with once we see how it plays out. So, you know, Governor Cuomo in some ways is such, you know, a unique figure um, that while he's governor, you know, it's going to be very tricky to see how this impacts any elections. If he runs for a fourth term and wins and then doesn't run again, well, he'll never participate in this system anyway. And I think, as I said once there, you know, one of my big takeaways from these reports and recommendations, both on the campaign finance side and on the party ballot side, is that this is basically a very Cuomo-friendly plan overall. And I think that's very clear. And I think Jay Jacobs drove that to fruition. Yes, I think all the points you make, I, I second. And I think, you know, what he got to there is some of the complexities. And, you know, he had very good answers to a lot of your very good questions about things like, um, why you didn't reduce the contribution level more while well, you're worried about independent expenditures. That is a worry. At the same time, Applying the match only to in-district contributions, um, in effect, uh, limits the ability of some candidates to resist some of those outside expenditures. Uh, although we had an interesting answer about that too, about how you are trying to, um, whose influence you are trying to magnify with the matching funds. And of course, it's important to recognize that while some elements of what has been proposed here would affect all contributions, 
the fact that some things will be matched and others won't won't mean that those donations can't come in. It just means they can't be matched. So there is there are kind of two levels of restriction that are being applied here. One of the other things I did want to mention, I didn't get into it with Jacobs, is um, there's they didn't institute they're not instituting as of right now any spending limits, which is interesting because New York City has those. You know, there's a few big differences between this proposed uh, program for the state and the New York City campaign finance system, which is seen as a as a model. Um, and one of those is spending limits for participants, and that's that's pretty interesting that there's no spending limit. Again, part of this argument potentially around. The IEs, the independent expenditures, you know, some some questions there because IEs in New York have not proven, including in New York City, have not proven particularly influential. That doesn't mean we couldn't see some more, uh, especially in statewide races. You never know what could happen in a gubernatorial race, especially or even an attorney general or controller race. Right. You know, your point about the spending limits is key, and, and they do limit how much you can get in terms of public funding, uh, but not how much you can spend. And that's a very good point because it goes to the point of this system does not end the role of private money in campaigns. That's not what, that's what being, that's not, is not what has been proposed. Um, it will uh, limit it by augmenting small dollar donations and putting public money in the till. But, you know, if you look at the financing system in New York City year after year, private money, including major private donations, large donations, still play an incredibly important role in the system. And let me also say, as we got into there, if the if limits are not placed by the legislature on the state party accounts, this becomes even more uh, favorable to many incumbents because then you can, even if the limits are brought down on what can be given by individuals to candidates for state Senate, state assembly and statewide seats, the, the party apparatus can prop candidates up with unlimited donations right, to that huge, party apparatus and then and, for and the, the candidates. And so, uh, you know, I, he, for Jay Jacobs to be out there saying this, it will be very interesting to see if the legislature will come back and do something about those party accounts with an all democratic legislature. There's so little reason, I think, to do that. Um, but we'll see if they do. And then also the doing business limitations. So now to get another perspective on the proposed changes, let's bring in uh, Jessica Wisniewski. She is the executive director of Citizen Action of New York. Uh, Jessica, welcome to WBAI. Thanks for having me. And we should also say uh, that Citizen Action of New York is a key uh, a key piece of the Working Families Party, and, and Jess is very active in the Working Families Party, which is part of the reason we, we brought you on here. Do you want to give us your general reaction to the um, Campaign Finance Commission's report? Yeah. You know, I really wish I could be on the call just <laughs> talking about public financing of elections, mm. but unfortunately, the governor and Jay Jacobs really were determined to use what many are perceiving as some good but pretty weak public financing as a cover for really a massive attack against the Working Families Party and now on on all third parties in New York State. Um, You know, you use the word poison pill, but it doesn't quite describe um, because for many, you know, for months now, a year, many years, um, but especially within this past year when fusion kept on coming up in the conversation, all of us who have been longtime proponents of getting big money out of politics and passing a small donor matching fund system were like, fusion and third parties and party ballot status have nothing to do with public financing of elections. Why is that even a part of this? And of course, now the results are in. We, it's not, you know, everything we thought was, was true was true. Um, and this was a huge assault on on third parties in New York. And we know, you know, the governor has been after us a long time. The WFP in New York has stood up to him on progressive issues, fighting in the legislature, helping oust the IDC and putting the Senate Democrats in power, all things the governor really didn't want to deal with. So we're not surprised, but again, even with some small gains on the public financing side, although a lot to left to be desired, um, the real travesty here is such a brutal attack on uh, with the party threshold. Let's deal briefly with the first part of your answer, which is about the public financing recommendations themselves. Yeah. You've characterized them as small victories, as weak. I know it might be hard to separate the dealing with uh, party thresholds. That's obviously part of the program. But talk about that. What do, you, what do you think of what they have proposed? What is it that you think is lacking from from what's on the table now in terms of the financing mechanism itself? Sure. 
As someone who has fought for reform in Albany, I am certainly not someone who will let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, but I think we really have something to look at. There's pieces of good in here that, as you said, if can ultimately be implemented many years out, unfortunately, and tweaked along the way, would actually make a significant difference. We will have a small donor six to one match um, at 250 and below, like New York City's older system, right, for all statewide offices by 2026, in the legislature by 2024, uh, but again, only the small donations coming from inside the district. But they did a really creative thing, which is a progressive match. So the smallest donations from 5 to $50 get a 12 to 1 match. And the next tranche up of small donations get um, 9 to 1 and then 8 to 1, up to 250 And that is significant to us because you're really focusing on those small donors. Working class people are getting their voices kind of amplified in the system, which, of course, is the whole point. But the, the contribution limits still remain high, as you were mentioning. They were sky high. They're still sky high. And even though they have come down significantly, because they were so high to begin with, we still will have some of the highest contribution limits in the United States. And so you'd have to continue to lower those limits to really oust the big money players in state politics in Albany and reduce their influence further. Um, but ultimately, a candidate would be able to utilize the system to run with only small donations and public funds if they choose to use the system that way. Ideally, they would have listened to the experts, modeled it a little bit more after New York City allowed those out-of-district matches as well, lowered the contribution limits further, dealt with the war chests and the doing business stuff, um, and made a much tighter model for the nation. Um, and I hope in time, it's a forever fight of campaign finance reform, we can get there in New York. Let's talk about the party thresholds. The requirement that's been that would be imposed by these new rules is to maintain ballot status to get 130,000 votes uh, in statewide races in gubernatorial and presidential years. Uh, I think, as Jacobs mentioned, that threshold poses a big problem for some other parties, for the Libertarians, uh, year to year, sometimes for the Greens. But that's you know right around where the Working Families Party has been. It was over that in 2010 when Cuomo was your nominee. It was very close to that in 2014. It fell significantly short in the last election, 2018. But, but that's kind of the neighborhood you guys have been in. Uh, how is this, therefore, an attack on, on the WFP? Yeah, I think you'd be more spot on if we are still talking about only gubernatorial races every four years, right? We might have to work a little bit harder to get that ballot status, but it would probably be possible, you know, with the 130. Um, but they did it every two years. Now, for the presidential, we have to hit that and the gubernatorial. And it's not just hitting 130,000 up from 50. It's 2% of overall voter turnout. In a high level, like the, pre the upcoming presidential, that could be hundreds of thousands of votes. And so that would be pretty difficult. That doesn't mean we're not going to fight really hard to meet it in New York. But it's going to take a lot, you know, it's going to redirect our energy to that instead of doing what we do well, which is help win state Senate races, help um, legis our candidates on the ground in the Assembly and Senate um, win their seats. Um, and so it is going to make it much more difficult, especially because of the presidential. Doing it through the presidential also has an extra hook of giving a lot more power to the state Democratic Party over the WFP. Because remember, when we vote for president, we're voting for electors. And every one of those Democratic electors is going to then have to fuse with the Working Families Party in order for us to get technically the votes on the line. So it's they have created definitely the most hostile environment for third parties in the nation. No other state makes it this hard. And the Working Families Party believes that we can probably win in court, um, that they've just made it too difficult. It's too outrageous. And we'll we'll be seeing them in a few weeks in court. I'm I'm struck a little bit by, you know, the idea that um, 
in the governor's three, uh, you know, campaigns for governor, he's been he's had the Working Families Party line in all three, and yet we have here this this instance where you know there's pretty clear evidence that the governor, the governor's appointees, want to make it harder for the Working Families Party to have a ballot line. How do you sort of square all that and and argue that? the WFP really deserves it when it's mostly been getting these votes on a ballot line with, with governor Cuomo out of these very tricky compromises, at least the last two cycles. I'm not quite sure I understand your question. I mean, the, the, the question basically is, you know, the whole sort of arrangement here has been that the WFP winds up uh, compromising with the governor to give him mm. the ballot line in order to keep the ballot line. And so, yep. Uh, you know, there's sort of this this very sort of strange bedfellows situation where, you know, I think to, to some New Yorkers, the whole, you know, fusion voting system doesn't make a lot of sense. And and to others, you know, this is a little bit of sort of, you know, you you sort of tried to defeat Cuomo in the primary uh, this last time around. And now, you know, he's coming back to to make things more difficult for you. That's true. I think that we've been ratcheting up the pressure on him. He really doesn't want to deal with us anymore because in every single one of those instances, it's really been war, right? First with Zephyr Teachout uh, in 2014, with Cynthia Nixon in 2018. Um, every time we have threatened him, we have pushed him and prodded him from the left to do better on issues um, and that's part of our that is our job, right, as the Working Families Party to push a progressive agenda that puts Working Families Party first, something that we have witnessed Cuomo really push back on over the years. And I think that he has tried to weaken the party over and over again over the years, um, pitting pitting unions, you know, trying to split us from unions, et cetera. Um, and this is kind of his final attack to try to weaken us and get us out of the way so he doesn't have to deal with us anymore. And I think he has greatly miscalculated that because you're, we're not going away. We're never going away. And we're only building in power. Tiffany Caban, IDC, um, growing nationally, picking up seats in Philly. I mean, the, the party is only growing. And I think New Yorkers, um, people across America are getting more frustrated with the Democratic Party and looking for an alternative. And that's the alternative that we're building and we're gaining in power. And the more we gain in power, the more the governor uh, gets driven crazy and wants to destroy us. He's he tried. He's trying here and we don't think he'll succeed. We're going to come back uh, stronger uh, in 2020. Um, and I think this opens up a whole new uh, strategy for us in 2020, because it wasn't even just the governor who signed off on this. It's a commission made up of uh, the governor's appointees and the legislative leaders appointees. It's really disappointing that this is where we ended up. So talk about the issues that might be at play then, because obviously, you know, Governor Cuomo has moved significantly or at least he has moved noticeably to the left over his time in office perhaps because of pressure from the WFP and just changes mm -hmm. in the general political landscape. And so now you're going to want to prosecute uh, this election in 2022, um, where he is likely to be on the ballot for a fourth term. What are the issues where, because obviously many voters are not going to care about the fight between the Democrats and the Working Families Party. That's inside baseball. So where are the issues where you think you're going to draw sure. a distinction between the WFP brand and what Cuomoism represents? How are you going to make that distinction clear enough that folks are going to say, yes, I'm going to pull the WFP ballot for a guy with the same name as the guy on the Democratic uh, ballot, assuming that's what you guys decide to do again. So I think that the, the, the biggest place where we have always um, been in really different places as the governor is on uh, taxes and school funding. Um, the governor, as much as he claims, has increased it increased public school funding. Um, what we know is the state still owes $4 billion to the campaign for fiscal equity to our schools across the state, particularly to schools in black and brown communities. Um, and the, t the, the revenue raisers needed to make that happen, taxing the rich, right? We've just been through uh, uh, the past few years of massive Trump tax cuts. We're facing another budget deficit. Um, but Cuomo has been it has just absolutely refused. And in fact, as 
fair share tax reform was renewed, given back billions of dollars to the super wealthy in New York State. And we are going into a legislative session where revenue and raising taxes on the rich and fully funding human needs and our schools is going to be a major legislative battle. And it will be happening simultaneously as the election season begins for the legislature. Um, so I think over the course of the next few years, it's those economic justice, human needs, austerity measures. And he has just pushed these austerity measures for ages as he's been governor um, from his from the very get go. Uh, I think those are the kind of issues that will really differentiate where we are and where he is in uh, in politics. today. A, a lot to discuss there. And we'll have to have you back when the next legislative session gets going. Um, but you mentioned the role of the of the legislature and the legislative leaders. And that's something that I I keep coming back to about this commission and the fact that the legislative leaders um, and their and their appointees allowed both the severability or lack of severability to move forward in these recommendations where basically the entire commission had to take it all together or leave it in terms of the ballot access elements and the campaign finance elements and then and then supported these changes to the ballot access that Certainly the assembly speaker and the Senate majority leaders representatives on the commission didn't have to go along with what what happened there. Yeah, well, it's not a surprise to anyone that the whole commission was kind of a mess from the get go. Right. Really disorganized, really confusing as to how things were working behind the scenes and really how much power the legislative leaders and the governor and their staff had in this process, right? I will give a lot of credit to Andre Stewart-Cousins appointees um, who really went out there with strong public financing proposals, much stronger than where the commission left, really pushed back against even the idea of the party ballot status being a dis- you know, saying it was a distraction um, that it was. Um, so the Senate appointees did push, but in the end, even in the final meeting, like, for example, the severability clause, like we're looking back through the videos, they were reading and looking at severability clauses that in their final report weren't even in there. Um, and then this whole concept of it being tied together um, was something early Jay Jacobs pushed. I think even before it was like their first meeting where the commission didn't even get started yet. And so... In the final meeting, literally, like, they were getting calls and text messages and changing votes in the same meeting, flipping what they had just passed. It was really wild. So I think um, there's a lot to unpack there, and it's obvious to anyone who is watching um, that, yes, the commissioners all played a role, uh, but clearly there were strings being pulled. Um, And I think, ultimately, it lands at the feet of the legislative leaders um, and and the legislators themselves who empowered this commission. And that's why it's their job to come back and fix it, right? The commission, even on public financing, did not do everything they needed to. And certainly on party thresholds, none of it should have been done. And so we are absolutely calling on the legislature um, to do what the law originally said, which is to come back and fix, keep what's good about public financing, but fix everything else. Um, And they can do that right now. And we are calling on them to do so. Well, we'll see if they heed that call. Jessica Wisniewski, the executive director of Citizen Action of New York, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. 